Hello and welcome to episode 201 of What Most People Think and well we got the double hundred up now we've got to start building towards the 300 but you do that in groups of tens and everyone says in podcasting always start off with uh, with a cricket analogy you know that would be good for the new listeners. <laughs> anyway I hope you're well, I hope you've had a, um, a, a good week. I was uh, um, doing some gigs up in, in Yorkshire, um, one thing I was saying about Yorkshire when I was on stage was that it's the only, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it's the only place that really is doing the county thing. There's not, there's very few counties that have a sense of themselves. There's no, there's no one from Shropshire or, you know what I mean? Or you, you don't really get a sense of people from Suffolk having an identity. But the moment you get in Yorkshire, we want to fucking Olympics. That's what we did. Yorkshire should break away, break away um, from United Kingdom. Um, but it's good to be there. Sorry, that's my dog coughing. Um, I, I was at a hotel in Selby and um, I stayed here. I, I don't want to sound like I'm slating it because it was it was adequate. Um, it was called The Wishing Well. And um, I, if you saw my social media, I did a couple of posts from there. It just, I, I, love, I love a budget hotel. So just understand that everything I say, I say with love. But it probably had the worst view out of a bedroom window of any hotel I've ever been on. The hotel was already on an industrial estate. On one side of it was a a dual carriageway. And on the other side of it was like the industrial estate. And I was looking out onto like a carpet wholesalers. (laughs) But you have to understand, I live for this shit. It's the budget hotel. Staying in budget hotels, it makes me think like that's that lack of self-worth that I have deep beneath me, deep inside it makes me, I, th- I feel right there. Do you know what I mean? Like I say, I'm saying on the tour, I don't sleep well in nice hotels, and that's one for the councillor. Um, I've got David Baddiel on this week. You know, Adrian Charles last week, James Haskell the week before. This is when you know you share the podcast and you leave the reviews and all that stuff. It all helps to be getting, you know, just brilliant people like this. And he came on, and I've already chatted to him. We chatted about his book, The God Desire, which I listened to on audiobook. And it just, you know, it's that classic... David's got that ability to do the what most people think thing, which is to go high, but also do it in a, an accessible way. Talk about big concepts, but you never feel excluded. And, and best of all, this book is you could do it in, a, in, a, in an afternoon. Feel a bit smarter, be entertained and have read a book. It's well worth getting. But listen, listen to the interview and I'm sure you'll come to the same conclusion as me. Uh, new patrons. This show is uh, funded by patrons. We've got Christopher Ollie. I mean, that is just what you must get invited on so many stag do's. Stag do's that you don't even know people just so they can chant Ollie, 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 Oi, Oi. Chrissy O. Chrissy O. Is that your name? That may be Chrissy O. Christopher Ollie. I mean, it is quite a posh sounding name, but there's ways of bringing you down to our level, Christopher Ollie. Um, so yeah, maybe you're one of those middle class lads that got in with the wrong crowd, you know? Now, now you do like a real like bloke's job and it's weird, it's weird in your family, but you've done all right. You've done all right. You've got your own scaffolding firm and your name on the side of a van. So now, and meanwhile, your brother who's going down the solid middle-class route, what's he earning? He ain't earning what you're earning. What's he doing? Project manager. What the fuck is that? You've got your name on the side of a van. Um, was anyone with me there? Did you get what I was getting at there? I was. I suppose I was driving at the the diminution of wages for classically middle class jobs versus 
men with a trade. Or women, because we all know there's lots of women in the scaffolding game. These are the kind of caveats you have to say in modern media. Just stuff that just statistically almost isn't worth mentioning. Um, John Fletcher. John Fletcher. Um, you've got to be a crime writer, haven't you, with a name like that? The latest John Fletcher. Murder on a boat. Mur- I mean, just murder. So much fucking murder. I don't understand. I, I, I just don't understand why murder is a genre and, and no one thinks it's problematic. You think about all the things that you could portray in films and, you know, and, and books, but just murder. It's big business and it always has been. You even have the word murder in the title of stuff. Like the word murder helps sell stuff. It's just weird. You know when something is massive, but you don't understand why it's so big. What's another example of that on a lower level? Car chases in films are just bore me shitless. The moment I see a car chase starting, if we're in the cinema, I'm like, babe, do you want to, do you want to, do you want some more pick and mix or do you I get some more? Po-? I just, I can't be bothered. I cannot be bothered. The only interesting outcome to a car chase is if, is if the, the heroes of it just basically crash and die. That is the only, <laughs> that's the only interesting outcome to a car chase. They just go on so long. They must be so expensive to do. You know, and in reviews, people talk about the frills and spills of the car chase. It's not, not for me, not for me. Although spaceships, I do like spaceships. So maybe, you know, there's stuff in Star Wars that is probably the space equivalent of a car chase. There you go. Speeder bikes in Return of the Jedi on Endor. That's my car chase. Uh, The main talking point, um, David says, and this is following up to the interview of Adrian Charles, very controversial moment in the discussion about, there was a lot of discussion about motorways, okay? And it was a very, probably the blokiest episode. I might even re-release it when my book comes out in September. What a plug that was. Um, but the, the question was about whether the M25 is in fact a full circular road and whether or not the Dartford Crossing is a different road. And David has confirmed my worst fears is that it is it is a separate road. It's the A202, A282, stretching between the M25's junction with the A2 and its junction with the A13. The original Dartford Crossing predated the M25. Uh, It wasn't built to motorway standards, so it wasn't incorporated into the M25. Absolute bombshells there. And another little fact, this is is going to fucking... You probably need to get ready for this. 55% of the London underground is overground. I'll give you just a minute just to catch yourself there. Just, uh, Just pass out on the fainting couch. Um, Chesham Station is the furthest from central London. 25 miles away. Fuck me. That is like having... That, that, what, like, I, I mean, I was going to say, that's like having sort of something from central Manchester that goes out, to, but they probably are on, on the tram link. But 25 miles away. I mean, you don't want to get on a tube at one spot and then come out the other side and they're speaking with a different accent. That doesn't feel right. And that's from central London. So I'm guessing that that's on, what, the Metropolitan Line? So if you go to one end of the Metropolitan Line to the other, that might be 30-odd miles. Anyway, <laughs> I think I think we've done enough infrastructure chat, haven't we? Um, by the way, you can email the podcast, whatmostpeoplethinkuk at gmail.com, and there was a lot of blokey back and forth. Um, Peter Smithson, we spoke about your favourite services, and Peter Smithson said he's a big fan of Donington services. I've never been to Donington services. Okay, well, I might check that out. Uh, Paul Norton got in touch to say that he is a fan of Cobham, I know what you mean about Cobham. It's got a lot of the things that I should love about a service station, but it's just, it's, I don't like the vibe. <laughs> I mean, it's got like, yeah, I mean, I think it's got like a Pizza Express, it's got a Nando's, it's got a hotel, 
It's got the chopsticks, you know, the place that does the Chinese food. It's got it's got it's got two of the big three, which you'd always be looking for, KFC and McDonald's. It's got a Marx's. I mean, it's got a lot of the things you'd want, but just I don't know. I don't know. Because it's the Southeast, maybe it lacks a bit of lacks a bit of a bit of character. And, and you know, the great thing about Beaconsfield is just how condensed it. I mean, I know people might think I'm in the employ of Beaconsfield. He's just <laughs> he's just a shill for big service. Okay, before we speak to David, uh, a thank you and a fuck you. Quick thank you to Fort Park. Went there on Bank Holiday Monday with my kid. And the great thing was, I think everybody's had too many bank holidays. so Everyone's fucking skint. And um, it just wasn't that busy. And also, because my son's seven, he, he's not really ready for the big roller coaster rides, thank God. Um, you can really skirt around the mid-range ones and, and there's not too much... Cu- Again, this just sounds like an advert. It's not an advert. Although, having said, and this will prove it's not an advert... Is they've got like a little man-made beach there called Amity Beach, and um, you know the kids. It's got like a splash park, a paddle park, all of these things. And um, it said it was shut, and it said oh, we are at the mercy of the great British weather. It was twenty-one degrees with a light breeze. That is the best of the British weather. Um, so I was pissed off about that. And but we went on this ride called the Zodiac, which was it was one of the more scary-looking rides. But I thought. I thought my son would be able to handle it. And basically it was kind of like a big wheel on its side. So you're in these pods and it spins around and stuff and then it goes up on its axis. I don't know why I didn't realise how terrifying it would be because it started and then it must have hit a level of G-force. And I thought, fucking hell, I'm going to freak out here. So what I did was I tried to carry on talking to my son to, to sort of like paper over how terrified I was. But as I, was, I wasn't blacking out, but I was certainly... I was certainly, uh, I was struggling a bit. And he actually said to me, he said, Daddy, you're right, you're, you're just, you're, your words sound Because <laughs> I was trying to say, oh, we're on a spaceship, son, we're on a spaceship, we're going in and out of space, and we're in space, and Jupiter, and cosmonaut, Norco. and I was just abs- talking absolutely fucking gobbledygook. And, um, and I was just, you know when a ride's been scary enough where you're like, I hope that they, because you have to wait for them to unlock the thing to let you out, I was just like, please let us be last, because if I was first out of there, you're talking jelly legs. Talking jelly legs, just Norcott straight face down on the fucking floor, you know. Uh, the fuck you goes to uh, the Tories this week because they've allowed themselves to be associated with a um, a price cap on food, which I just got to say, right? I mean, two things here. One is that food isn't like electricity, okay? Food varies by product. You cannot impose uniform costs for something that, you know, you get fucking bread that is like, artisan sourdough fucking fuckwit bread and and then you get like you know the real cheap stuff that you know it's nice in the toaster but it's you know it's bit you know just sort of nutrition free bread um they're not the same thing that's why you never get like electricity value range electricity is a singular entity either powers the house the things in your house or it doesn't do you know what i mean it's not it's it, you can't. I just don't understand why the Tories are doing this. Are they trying to outflank Labour? They're trying to outflank Labour, and uh, Labour are trying to outflank the Tories. And uh, I know you're all doing a joke in your head. What we've got, Jeff, is a bunch of flankers. Good, well done. We have that. But um, how about they just concentrate on what they're supposed to be doing as parties, rather than continually trying to win business from people that wouldn't normally do business with them. And also, like the idea of basic food stuffs is is highly subjective. I mean, if you you're gonna tell me in Crouch End, <laughs> they'll just be going like, "What about sweet potato?" 
and chia seeds. Okay, it's time for a chat with David Baddiel. Returning to the podcast, he did the 100th episode and he's been kind enough to come back and talk about the 201st. And I hope you enjoy this chat about, well, religion, philosophy and shitting. Okay, and returning to what most people think, I'm delighted to welcome back uh, David Badil. Who uh, are you? Well, David, first up. I'm well, Jeff. Yes, I'm very good. Although I had my birthday quite recently, and I'm 59. Yeah, uh, and so I am quite well, but I don't know how well anyone is at my age. Do you know what I mean? I'm a, <laughs> I'm aware of yeah. the fact that I must be in a state of decay, <laughs> however well I feel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I definitely, I can't. I mean, I'm 46 now. I mean, this just, that that's a, a shitty thing to say. You've just said you're 59. No, it's not. And I've it's said, well, you know, I wasn't expecting you to lie about it to make me feel better. No, yeah, but I'm, it did. It yeah. did feel a bit like you know when people say, oh, you know, I've got insomnia, and people say, oh, I sleep beautifully and have done my whole life. I, I, it had yeah, a thing a of joke. that. Are you, that's a joke. What you've just done there is one of my earliest jokes, which I will now do. Because one of my earliest jokes was that because well, I am an insomniac, yeah. And if you say you're an insomniac, people will say, "Yeah, no, I'm always asleep as soon as my head hits the pillow." And I always want to think, "Well, if I'd said I was blind, would you have said, oh, really? Because I can see perfectly.'" <laughs> right? And that—that's a joke that I, in my first ever stand-up set, I think. See, this but is you're not too young to know that. <laughs> no, no, there's every chance that it, it's seeped in culturally, and then you know, yeah. if I just patiently. Wait, eventually you won't be around, and I can just masquerade that joke that they'll, everyone would have forgotten, and I'll yeah, have a good—I'll have a good five years where I can do that line. Um, yeah. I, I think at forty-six, one thing I've just—I can't ignore that I'm going to get very old now. That's—that's that's being the other side of forty-five. Weirdly, it, I, I don't know that I've crossed some sort of threshold where mm. I—you know—when I was closer to forty, that felt like the last little bit of youth. But there, there's no getting away from it. It's just a slow march now, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, now the problem is, now you have made it worse, because when you said I'm 46, I thought, well, he's 46. But now that you've said it's a slow march from 46, and I am 59, yeah. all I think is I am on that march. That's basically like, you know, Chiang Kai-shek or whoever did the long march. Probably not Chiang Kai-shek, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm at the other end of it. You're at the start of it. I'm at the other end of it. And you know, but we don't know where our march ends, David. We we don't. My march might unexpectedly end. You say that. I was just reading about Al Pacino's having a baby. Did you read that? Uh, He's eighty-three, and uh, the Times tried to suggest it was part of a trend with people having children in later life. Although the trend seems to go as far as Robert De Niro, (laughs) (laughs) the the, the two blokes out of Heat. Yeah, and the Godfather. Yeah, so basically, people in the Godfather are having. Uh, anyway, what what I noticed was that Robert De Niro was quoted as saying, "It's a mystery, you know, about like what might happen with having kids in later life." And I think, well, it's a mystery, but I don't know. You're going to see that son's bar mitzvah. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> you know, I'm fairly sure. I wouldn't take a bet on it. Is all I'm saying. It is. I mean, I, 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 I like to be as honest as I can on this podcast. And when you get in, you know, and obviously this is a hot button time talking about age gaps. I think it's fucking rank. You know, when I hear about that, I just think, you know, I think Philip Schofield has provided us with a phrase that actually is quite useful. Unwise, but not illegal. Really covers quite, quite a lot, doesn't it? 
It's a brilliant phrase, unwise but not illegal, yeah. I mean, what Philip is sort of forgetting there is that we live in a culture where unwise but not illegal is not something you can get away with. Mm. I don't know if he's noticed that, but uh, generally people who have behaved immorally but perhaps not done something to get them in prison tend to get slapped, you know, quite heavily down, you know. Um, although, you know, there's arguably th those people come back. I was just talking to someone about Louis C.K. and how Louis C.K. is doing Madison Square Garden again. And, you know, everyone seems happy now to sort of forgive him. So, you know, arguably, because I was thinking about that. What is the redemption arc mm. for Philip Sheffield? Assuming that he's not lying again, assuming that he hasn't done anything illegal, there should be a redemption arc. But is Philip's redemption arc too lowly for him? By which I mean... Is he prepared to go on, I'm a celebrity, oh. celebrity big brother, you know, celebrity, how clean is my house, whatever shit you have to do when you're a kind of disgraced celebrity to yeah. claw you yeah. slowly back, slowly back to, to people thinking, oh, yeah, he was all right. You yeah, I mean? yeah, that he got. I mean, I suppose one arc might be that people eventually just find Eamon Holmes more irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think Eamon, uh, I read yesterday, Marina Hyde in The Guardian, Saying, you know that phrase, not only, it's not just superheroes who wear capes. Yeah, she said, like certain heroes, it's not, it's not just superheroes who have sour grapes. And <laughs> I think it's this, like it's an incredible example from Eamon of like he's so angry, isn't he? About is well, he angry about being removed from this morning, or is he angry about being? And I put this in inverted commas, tricked by by who he calls Pip. I, well, knowing show business, I'd say that the former was probably a yeah. big part of it. Same with um, that doctor guy. That You know, a lot of it, you know, it had this thing which was a legitimate story, which was about power structures, right, and, yeah. and how you treat people, you know, especially when they're younger. And I think that that really was the undeniable moral heart of it. And then, you know, there was some mildly homophobic stuff that was coming in from one side. And then the other side, it's like this Trojan horse for people just with showbiz beefs. I mean... The idea that big successful television programs involve alpha figures that sometimes are rude to people is is barely news, I would say. Well, I'll tell you what else I think is really strange about it. It's like, obviously, there's a front that goes up in a big TV program when something like this happens and they try and contain it really unsuccessfully on this morning. But if we go back to his first coming out, which was with Eamon, right? Eamon was there, he was there yeah. and, and hugged him and whatever, and everyone was like, he's so brave and whatever. Now, one thing that is confusing me, Jeff, and, and you know, maybe it's just me, but we all knew and they knew they were lying then. Mm. Because I'll tell you why, and, and I'm not gay, but this is my guess. If I'd been married and pretending to be heterosexual for 27 years and had two children... I don't think I would smash that up on a hunch. I, I think I'd at least dip my foot in the water, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what, of being sexually with a man before yeah. I thought, like, I'm going to smash all that up because clearly I'm gay. But yeah. that's, what he, that's what he was trying to tell us. He was trying to tell us, I've been married for 27 years, I've realised I'm gay. Nothing has happened to confirm that belief. No, no. I, I, Just, I, uh, yeah, this, this really is my first rodeo, was what he was yeah, trying exactly. to say. And, and whoever believed that? I mean, no one... All well, this stuff about Holly Willoughby saying he lied to me, Eamon Holmes saying he lied to me, 
I mean, obviously, no one believed that, did they, at any point? Well, I mean, I first heard the the rumour about the story, about the lad, the runner and stuff. I heard that in about 2018, and, and with no connections to daytime television, I heard it then in exactly the way that it broke. So you do think, if I, you know, with barely a connection, heard it then as it was, then there must be hundreds of people that, that knew for, yeah. for a fact about this. So that that's what comes of I, I guess I suppose you know if you're looking at it from Holly and Eamon's point of view if they've looked him straight in his eyes and asked him a direct question and he's and he's claimed something to them then but that is really hard for the public to believe I guess that's a hard one to, to I don't to I don't believe it I don't I don't honestly think they believe it I think they thought well I think Holly certainly thought Eamon obviously after he got bumped uh, felt he could speak differently but I think Holly thought right we've got away with it the brand Right, the brand of Holly and Phil, we've got away with it. Uh, he, you know, we will go with this, uh, this brave story of a gay man locked in a heterosexual marriage who somehow or other has decided without spending any time in the gay world with a man mm. has decided, oh, I am gay I'm, and, and I'm only going to be gay once I'm out of the marriage. Oh, I'm, we're going to go with that because that's the sort of clean version of it. And no, I just think she must have known, or or at least perhaps a tiny element of doubt. Uh, yeah, mind, I would have thought. But now she's saying, sorry, she's saying her statement. Mm. Bill told me this. It turns out to be a lie. I am deeply hurt. I just think that's bollocks, isn't it? Well, speaking of things that uh, you think are bollocks, um, yeah. I-, I listened to an audio book of uh, The God Desire. And I-, I should say, actually, the way that you approach this isn't in that macho way of that atheists sometimes come down on religion. But um, we-, we were just speaking before we came on air about, you know, continuing the sort of showbiz chat theme about just the process of making an audio book. Now, I spoke to a couple of people that have, have-, have written books before we get into the actual content of the book. Um, you know, like Rob Beckett, he said that he had a panic attack the first time that he recorded an audio book. I no. certainly, uh, yeah, no, I, I spoke to a few people now and I guess you must have done a few, but yeah. I found it one of the most um, exacting things I've ever done. Because it's just like you, there's a normally a dude, but just somebody the other side of the window. It's you, your ideas, your voice. Have you learned a way to be good at it? Because it's a brilliant listen. I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, well, <laughs> sorry, I'm, so, I'm going to get some water, Jeff. Because I've started coughing, which is probably the beginnings of death. Uh, (laughs) Hang on a minute. Actually, in terms of audio books, in terms of audio books, that for me is the biggest problem, which uh, is much more mechanical than what you're talking about, which is I find uh, towards the end of reading an audio book, my voice just starts to go. And I start, you know, coughing or sounding husky or whatever and have to take a lot of what they're called zoids, something zoids. You know, those sort of sweets that are good for Oh, yeah, yeah, the throat ones, yeah. Mm. And um, I know, I, I mean, well, having said that, most of my audiobooks are either in children's books, which I used to read all by myself, which are quite, that's quite a big deal. But then about halfway through reading, I've got 10 of them now, I thought, well, my vocal range is not good enough to do this because there's like 12 characters in this. One of them is a body swap, so I definitely need to be able to illustrate with my voice when it's the one character and when it's the other character. So now with them, I just do the narrator and we have a cast that do all the characters and I do the narrator. Oh, hello. A cast, uh, you're doing all yeah, right. You've a... got a, if you've got a cast for an audio book, you're doing all right. Yeah, now I've got a cast 
Moena, my wife, is often in them. Um, and so that's more, you know, bringing more money to our household. Uh, and then the essay books that you're talking about, like Jews Don't Count and The God Desire, yeah, I read those all myself, but they're quite short. Mm. Uh, they're sort of 100 or 150 pages long. Uh, if I have a crisis, it'll be my throat hurting. The, we were we were saying about like listening to audiobooks. I mean, one of the great things about the God Desires an audiobook is my favourite kind of thing, which is entertaining, but you leave feeling a bit smarter. Um, yeah. But I, I'm always le- left with that feeling: Am I cheating? Is this a cheating way of reading? Because you do think that like the pure, it's almost like Test match cricket versus limited overs. Like the pure way to do, you know, deep down, is to read words off a page. But then you go, is the compensatory element of hearing the author in tone? And, and say things in exactly the way they want them to come across. Is it a legitimate form of reading? Yeah, that's a very, very good philosophical question. Uh, and I have, a again, a mechanical answer to it, which is uh, I cannot read books close up anymore because I've got something called presbyopia, which is basically a thing whereby I can actually see very well without glasses uh, a little bit away from me, but close up, everything's blurred now. So I have to have reading glasses, which I can never fucking find. Uh, I never know where they are. Nora Ephron, who wrote When Harry Met Sally, in her mm. book for Aging, which is called something like I'm Worried About My Neck, she does this brilliant essay on how not being able to just pick stuff up and read it is deeply destabilising to who you are, especially if you're someone who writes and reads or whatever. But I can't. I never know where they are. I'm not wearing them around my neck because I'm not Jenny Murray. Uh, so I don't... So So now virtually all my reading, certainly deep reading, like books and novels and whatever I do through audiobooks. Uh, and I agree, it's a certain intimacy between you and the page, a certain deep connection between you and the page is lost. Hearing those words in your own head, uh, there's a distance that comes with a narrator. Uh, uh, my narrators, by the way, because I mainly listen to novels, are not the author. So I'm, li- mm-hmm. I'm, I'm li- listening to all of Graham Greene's novels at the moment, which are fucking brilliant. And they tend to be big actors reading them. Michael Kitchen, I'm presently listening to, reading Heart of the Matter. And by the way, that creates another thing with audiobooks, which is sometimes your sense of an audiobook is totally based on the narrator, who might not be the author. So, you know, sometimes I hear, I'm sorry if you're listening, but I started thinking about downloading another Graham Greene book. Uh, I can't remember which one it was now. Uh, But anyway, he had Simon Cadell reading it. I think it used to be in Heidi High, Simon Cadell. Is that right? The, the posh, was he the posh-looking bloke? Was he the posh one in Heidi High? Yeah, the one who and had it, that weird 70s sort of sinister sexuality where you go, he hasn't done anything wrong, but I feel like he might be a bit weird. Well, maybe that was an intimation of things to come. Uh, a whole new tree <laughs> intimation was in, in his character. But anyway, I didn't like his voice when I, when I played the sample. I thought, oh, I don't know if I can be doing with that as a result. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, Juliet Stevenson, the actress, I listened to her reading Middlemarch by George Eliot, and it was like virtually a religious experience for me. I I think it's one of the books that I've read. I'm going to say read now. We've decided yeah. it's legitimate. Where the title felt like really important on two levels. One because of one that it, it what it is and what it wasn't because there was this theme of I felt like the reluctant atheist. You know, like there's this story that you tell about your kids and by the way spoiler alert it's really interesting isn't it? about the santa claus yeah uh, spoiler alert that it's quite a serious thing i have to give people a heads up right now that we're going to talk about all that yeah but um 
but you, that you actually went to the 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 trouble of plotting up the Santa Claus so that they knew things about your kids and and that you were quite yeah, invested. Specific thing, I think it was in where was it Kent somewhere because we used to have a cottage in Kent, so it was somewhere in Kent. You could go to like a quite shit version of Lapland. Uh, so it wasn't just like a grotto. It was a whole Christmas place yeah, yeah. Uh, with rides and, you know, uh, little bits and pieces and shops. And there was a grotto with Santa and you could basically email Santa in advance stuff like, you know, my daughter realized cats or whatever it might be. So that when my children met Santa, they were genuinely blown away. I mean, they believed in Santa anyway. But there must have been an extra element to that that made them think, well, this, this bloke, fuck, it, this is genuinely fucking it. Do you think you, do you, think you overdid it? I mean, what age yeah. did, did, did they not like get told the truth until they were in adult life sort of thing? No, well, that's one of the things is that like, I never told my children Santa doesn't exist. They just sort of worked it out for themselves. So I never had to have that difficult conversation. I would have thought that's, what, how old are your kids? Uh, he's seven. So you haven't. He still believes in Santa, not God. Yeah, I find it tricky because uh, he's Does he smart. listen to this podcast? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I'm really, I'm really cautious about it because the thing is, I really respect his intelligence, even as a seven-year-old. So I run the risk of accidentally saying it just because I'm like, mate, come on, fucking, yeah. think it through. You know, just, just, <laughs> think, just think it through for a second, and you should be able to work this out. It's really uh, hard. I mean. I spoke with other comics about this. It, as you get old, it's a really strange thing to be complicit in, in a way. And I, yes. you know, I say that as someone with nominally a faith, and I'm saying that the Santa Claus thing is weird. But yes. that's that, that, that's one thing I thought came through in the book. It was, and and this is where the title is important. It's like the God desire versus the God delusion. You're very yeah. much setting out your stories. Like, like I don't yeah. necessarily want to be an atheist, but I am, and here's yeah. a reasonable explanation of why. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't picked up on it the the book is and all my essay books i've only written two but i'm probably going to re, re, write more are very specific so jews don't count was very, not a history or a, a, a look at the waterfront of anti-semitism it was specifically about the failure of modern progressive thought and the identity politics conversation to include jews to understand anti-semitism to even care about anti-semitism and that's a very specific corner right of that conversation similarly this is not an attempt and I have seen one review in the Telegraph complaining that it's not this, that I don't take into account the whole history of religious and atheist thought. Mm. But it's not. It's a personal essay, really, on how my specific atheism is really about knowing that I would love there to be a God, feeling that that desire, that wish fulfillment is what creates God for en masse, that if everyone feels that en masse, we would love there to be a God. We would love there to be meaning to life. We would love there to be something after death. We would love to see our loved ones again. Uh, that creates a need which has to be fulfilled in some way. And that's my point, is that, that the need for me de defines it as imaginary, right? So, but you... But you like you're defining yourself against this macho atheism, which yeah. I first saw. I remember in comedy when I started going to the Edinburgh Fringe in the mid noughties and you know, there wasn't the Tory government, so people were like searching around for things to be angry about and right. rub up against. Yeah. And for a while, before the bankers, I remember there was a while where it was the bank, fuck the bankers. There was this weird thing where you had British stand-up comics talking about British Christianity as though it was the same as the Westboro Baptist Church. Right. Um, because they just didn't have much else to to um, rebel against. So with the moment you said macho atheism, I thought how self-conscious was that? You know, where Dawkins said the God delusion, 
it, it felt like were you were you I mean is that consciously mirroring that were you sort of no, no I did decide have... obviously obviously I didn't call it the god desire without an awareness that it, that but were you we sort of wanted to take the the piss a little bit or you well, know sort that of. Wing? I mean I mean I wanted to define it as a different corner of atheism yeah. to the god delusion um and a much more personal essay and yeah there's a lot in the book about what I consider to be this sort of slightly weird I think it is machismo I mean, beyond mm. Dawkins, uh, I quote Bertrand Russell, uh, and Bertrand Russell said at one point, "I, when I die, I will rot, my ego will disappear, uh, but I scorn, he says, I scorn those who would shiver at the thought of oblivion. Now, that that word scorn is very interesting because like, it implies a contempt and a sense in which he is far too brave and far too intelligent and whatever to worry about death and you kind of think like well that's not very human Bertrand and I I don't I believe like you that oblivion is waiting for me but I am happy to cop to the fact that that is terrifying and and it's a it's weird how unsaid that is by atheists because it seems to me that most atheists in saying religion is nonsense and dismissing it have to say and so i'm not worried about death i'm not worried about meaninglessness in life i'm not none of this bothers me i kind of think like well that can't be true and if it is true you're coming mm. across as a bit of a twat as a bit of a sort of you know you're humble bragging at some level you know uh or whatever the word is that's probably not the right word uh it was, but it's sort of posturing in a way because yeah, posturing yeah yeah, it's always like highway of hell. Like, yeah, or a lot of people would actually sort of savour it and go, "I'm actually looking forward to death." You go, yeah. again, if you if you claim that death is not a state of being itself, you can't look forward to it because then you're mistaking it for having a kip. Yeah, well, actually, Stephen Fry, who's who's very nice about the book um, and who is quoted on it, did write to me to say that he loves sleep so much that he he, he is not frightened of death and thinks of it as sleep. But as you'll know from the start of the book, uh, my mum said to me when I was first aware of death and six years old, don't worry, it's like a long sleep from which you never wake up. And as we began, I'm a lifelong insomniac uh, because <laughs> I didn't really take that well. And the whole thing is I, I was talking, I, me and Richard Iowadi, who's, who's a, a somewhat believer, and Richard brought along to the event, we did a discussion, uh, his, his theologian, he was a guy called Ben Quash. I mean, I say he doesn't have like a personal theologian, but he knows this. <laughs> Weird entourage. Like. Yeah, no, that is a bit, that <laughs> implies he has a sort of valet who's a theologian. No, he just has a bloke <laughs> he knows who's a theologian. He was very good, called Ben Quash. But Ben Quash said this thing about how he's always quite liked having anaesthetic, right? He always feels mm. like has anaesthetic. He feels like, oh, that's nice. I was unconscious and whatever. Uh, and it sort of quite liked it. And I said, yeah, when did you think that? And he sort of looked confused. And I said, when you woke up. My point mm. being that you have to have consciousness to have a sense of like, it would be quite nice to not have consciousness, to feel asleep forever. But And I don't really believe that the idea of that from the point of view of life is attractive. And by the way, as well as that, it's not just about the self not existing there's everyone else you love not existing that you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and all of this is terrifying. And I think the idea that you're not terrified by it is, as you said, posturing. You spoke about, you know, how people are atheists today. And you sort of described them in, in a quasi-religious way. Like like they want to be like, a lot of them want to be a bit like Jesus. And and I think it was, you said, throwing the money lenders um, at 
yeah. out of the church. And and I thought there was such a there was such broad connotations to that because when you think about the way that people protest on cultural issues. I mean, as, as we're talking, we had Kathleen Stock appearing at um, the Oxford Student Union. And I was just watching like the protesters as they marched against her appearance while saying that they're totally for her free speech, just not here. Um, but, but that's another issue. But the point was they had this zeal in their eyes, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's the thing that always bugs me about all protests. There was a Just Stop Oil one at the rugby. And I just, I sort of, I'm trying to be more open-minded because there's the, the everyday bloke in me thinks, oh, fuck off. You know what I mean? Right. But then but then you see them enjoying it. And I, yeah. I, I looked at this guy, I thought, you're enjoying this. And the moment that I, like, I thought you're getting something from this, yeah. is that a consequence of social media whereby this stuff is content? Whereas you think the women at Greenham Common, they weren't doing that for clicks. Almost no one was ever going to know who they were. Yes. Whereas now it's yeah. very hard to dissociate the idea that this is yeah. content. No, that's, well, I've talked about this before. In my, I did a documentary about anger and social media. Uh, and the point I was I made on that is that what we've created via that exactly what you're talking about, which is the ability for everyone to plat- have a platform, to be public, to have an audience at all times, is that what you do when you do that is you think like, right, here in my, I, here's my identity, because most of the time it's about your identity, really. It's like, who am I? I am a protester in one way. I believe this. How do I re- affirm that identity? I have to do it in opposition because that's what social media creates social media creates a thing whereby if you are um anti-kathleen stock or whatever then that's your identity is always to affirm that in opposition to the people who are pro-kathleen stock right and actually that's why i don't really like twitter now i just use it for jokes and for like plugging stuff because it's just a constant fighting Mm, space now and it's a fighting space because people define their identities mainly in opposition to the people who they feel are not them right and and that is not something i mean it probably there's an element of that probably to the green and common women because they're still within a peer group and they're still with it they're still like their friends are still you know feeling like i'm validating myself in opposition to the weapons and all the rest of it and people who are pro-nuclear i'm sure that's still going on this is not to undermine what they're doing it's nuanced right everyone does what they do for a variety of reasons and the notion that anyone's doing anything just because the cause is just is a load of bollocks right everyone's got psychological reasons for what they do and the psychological reasons now are really infiltrated by a sense of an audience like it's it's a deep what the technology has imposed on us it's a deep, deep, very complicated and not good self-consciousness. So no one does anything now without a sense of like, well, this could be seen. How does this look? What is it saying in front of an imagined audience? And, you know, it's weird, I think, for performers in a way who spent a lot of time knowing what it was like to have an audience. Uh, I think we can see it. We can see these are people who are all who are now aware of what it's like to have an audience rather than, as you said, in the past, a protest probably wouldn't have an audience. In terms of, like, you mentioned about self-consciousness and, and, and humour. Um, you mentioned this about our awareness of death. You mentioned two self-consciousness. Now, if I was a serious person, I would have thought about the one where the, we're the only animal that are aware that we're going to die. But you also yeah. mentioned that we're the only ones that are ashamed about shitting. Yes. And which obviously uh, made me laugh and, yeah. and, and think about. Uh, just the even the idea of, of a creature being ashamed of shitting is, is i don't know why it's just, it's just like a it's funny hilarious it's, it's, yeah. i mean i do later on in the book say because i'm trying to describe what it is that makes us human because i think part of the god desire 
is an, is human exceptionalism, right? Is the idea that we are somehow special because I believe that you know we that even if people who don't believe in God, we sort of think like yeah, but we're more sacred than the animals and we have special stuff that makes us human. And uh, what I'm saying is that that's a hangover from God made us in His image. And so I'm trying to find in the book and parts like what is it? And I this is a spoiler, but I come down to laughter because obviously. That's the only thing I can really say, like, okay, I haven't really heard a dolphin laugh, although possibly some monkeys I have. But then there's a subset, I say, which is, are we the only animals who feel shame in defecating? And then I think, maybe I've seen some dogs looking a bit embarrassed. Um, But even that, (laughs) am I just anthropomorphizing that on dogs? You've got dogs. So when dogs do look a bit like... I I think they feel vulnerable. To be fair to dogs, they don't have private toilets. So then no. we don't know whether or not they would be happier behind the door. That's what I'm saying. I think it's about vulnerability sometimes because it's quite an exposed. That's why they always check out. They do that weird thing where they check over their shoulders before, yeah, but before they have a It's because they're embarrassed. That's because presumably in evolutionary terms, you might be preyed upon. While yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, so yeah. someone's going to come and, and, and either fuck them or kill them while they're yeah. having the shit, which which yeah. we don't generally have. I mean, yeah. I do think the thing with, 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 with shit in generally is that, like, it's weird. Like, if you're really busting for a piss, you can go and have a piss and you can relate that to people, right? You can talk about it. What a relate. Oh, God, I thought I'd never stop and stuff. Whereas yeah. the experience of having a good shit is so utterly cathartic and yet... Yeah, like unless you're in really trusted company, like it's got to be like you, like I like I got a mate that would uh, would just who I used to work with, and he every time he come back to the toilet, he would just sort of shout out a mark out of ten. Yeah, and um, my and, son, and if my was... son, you might not appreciate this, but anyway, my son is very happy to tell me that he's mm. got a big shit, uh, and sometimes I, I I'll text him and he'll just reply, "I'm shitting." <laughs> so, I mean, he's eighteen, <laughs> by the way. He's not seven. He's eighteen yeah. and like nearly six foot. And and incredibly funny, my son. And so, you know, one of the things is like he's like very straightforward about it always. But I've actually Stephen Merchant once told me, he may, again, he may not thank me for this, but if you're tall, my son is pretty tall, not as tall as Stephen, that yeah. shitting happens to you, like it can come upon you very quickly, I think because mm. of gravity. I think that's just the point. A, yeah, a, a longer way to travel. Yeah. But also, like, it's, it's, it, it gains acceleration as it goes down the body, I think. By the way, I'm not a scientist or biologist, so I don't. That's correct. No, but, no. There's a guy. There's a guy that listens to a podcast called David Domain, and I'm sure that next week we'll we'll, we'll pick up on this. I mean, we're talking about right. Yeah, no, no. I, it's not generally something you're allowed to talk about. Although you know, I think it's very it's hilarious. I mean, it's one of the things that's hilarious about life is that that's something we have to do. Um, we're reduced to that. You're right. It does come from a sense of our own exceptionalism because, like, however, whatever status you have. There comes a point almost every day, you know, most days if you're lucky, where you're just reduced to this squatting well, well, creature. The most religious man I know, so, uh, quoted in the book a lot, my relationship with him and all that, which is Frank Skinner, once brilliantly said to me uh, when we were living together that uh, he was on the toilet, he was having a shit, and a he had the door slightly open and a wardrobe door uh, opened and he could see himself in a mirror because there's a mirror inside the wardrobe shitting and he thought... Is mad, but this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just uh, chipping into the chat with David here. Hope you're enjoying it. Um, we've got another. I th- did I mention this guy, a new patron, Ben Aston? 
Ben Aston. I've probably done this joke, but if you married a woman called Martin, then it would be the greatest double-barreled name ever, Ben Aston Martin. <laughs> Way too pleased myself for that little joke. Um, the the tour, the 2024 dates. Um, so 2023, a lot of those are now very close to selling out. If not, I think there's about a third of them are sold out. Another third are very close to selling out. And then the uh, the other third are well they're they're on sale let's put it that way but I've got some uh, I've got some shows uh, in 2024 I've got a whole leg of a tour so let's just go through some uh, some uh, headline dates we've got Kings Lynn we're going to Kings Lynn on 27th I say we it's just me I'm too tight to do a, t- a tour manager do you know most people are touring at my level have a tour manager I'm like no I'll do it my fucking self save money. Um, the 10th of February, Chorley Theatre. That is uh, that is nearly sold out, that one. A new date in Mansfield on the 14th of February. Loughborough Town Hall going back to Solihull, the core theatre. A Kendall. We've got a Kendall Brewery. That's, that's a fucking long way away, isn't it? Uh, but luckily, I'm doing Lancaster the following day, so I think I'm up in the same part of the world. First ever tour show in Middlesbrough, and so I'll have to do just brush up on my jokes about pollution and poverty. Um <laughs> Uh, speaking of poverty, uh, Newport, no, Newport, New, loads of English people have moved into Newport now, haven't they? They've basically ruined it. Uh, Newport, uh, Tewkesbury, Stevenage, first time ever doing a tour show in St. Evanage, as it's called. And I mean, look, look, Stevenage, nice place to live, good train links to London. Shithole of the earth, okay? One of the worst shopping centres I've ever been to. Uh, we, <laughs> should I do this just like I do the names? Just roast roast my town. Going back to Winchester. You can't knock Winchester. It's a nice place. Worthing. Poor man's Brighton. Uh, Bath. Pretentious wankers. Uh, Coventry. I mean, there's a reason they bombed it. Uh, <laughs> Ipswich. Wasn't it going that fucking truck driver is a murderer? Bristol. Uh, basically, poor man's Oregon. Uh, Nottingham. Well, everyone's going to get shot there. Chester. Kind of like... Uh, that's where all the wags live. Uh, I'm running out of steam here. Crew wasn't that where the football club had that nonce in charge? Um, <laughs> Shro- I mean, God, this is like cancelling bingo, isn't it? Um, Shrewsbury, they've got the worst fucking toll road in the world. Crawley, I mean, God, I mean, everything Romish said about it and then some. Reading, and the, the one thing nobody does in that place is read. Uh, Sale, I don't know where that is. Rugby league, no one likes fucking rugby league. Redditch. Good comedy accent there. Wimborne, which I think is near Bournemouth. So um, I think it's probably the only place near there that's still got pensioners. So hopefully most of them are still alive on <laughs> the 19th of April. Southend-on-Sea. Oh, I can't knock Southend. Well, I can. You know, basically, uh, Cockneys who wanted bigger gardens. Uh, Wellingborough uh, is kind of like uh, where people from Northampton move once they get an inheritance. Ilkley. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, one of the worst fried chicken chops I've ever been to in my life, and Southport, where sensible scousers go to die. Okay, good. Right, I hope I've put off everybody from coming to my 2024 dates. Let's get back to the chat with the author of The God Desire, David Badil. We're sort of talking like comedically at the moment. I and I spoke to to Romish about this. Every time either of us start a tour, we think I'm going to talk about the God thing. This tour, you know, like I think both. Like, of us uh, are... Let me just ask before you: What is your position? You've sort uh, of yeah, just you've just made... boringly. I mean, like I'll you know I, I I did a thing in in the show that I'm currently doing, which I've dropped. But I sort of said, you know, I'm aware that I, I have a loose faith, but I'm also aware that 
if I was born in Iran, I would have been a bit Muslim. And, and the joke was, if I was born in Sri Lanka, I would have been in Sri Lanka religion because I'm, I'm just not sure what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and, and, and I, yeah, I still don't know. I mean, I've, oh, yeah. I've done the I've done the joke, but I, I yeah, still yeah. don't know. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so so the, yeah, l- loose agnostic sort of, uh, you know, just 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 a nothingness, which is is really. Pro- well, I mean, kid, probably as a kid, what were you? Uh, did you go to church? Well, the family weren't uh, religious, but I I kind of was was um, attracted to the idea, and and I think if you ask me at my core, like if I had to say yes or no, do you believe there's a God? I would probably say yes. And it's just it's just an instinctive thing that I've had right. most of my life. But being a stand up, of course, you know, just like as you mentioned with Frank's book, I find that sort of intrinsically a bit fucking ridiculous. So, but I've never been able to talk about it in stand up. I don't know whether it's the kind of comic you are, and maybe it's because of the kind of other stuff I talk about. But when you say, even you mention the word God, faith, religion, do you remember it got to a point with Brexit where people just go, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" Yeah, it's been like that with religion, right? Well, for me, anyway, for a long time. I mean, yeah. do you talk about it in your stand-up? Although I, think, you I actually think, as someone who, you know, as you get from the book, although I'm sympathetic to the reasons why people believe in God, I really do not believe in God. I'm a very fundamentalist atheist, uh, which goes with, you know, the book being about understanding why people might believe in God. Um, I think possibly God is still a better idea than Brexit. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I thought I wondered if we get to this tangentially because when you were talking about the the kind of certainty of, of the, uh, the the atheist, I sort of was thinking about that. You know the you know the extreme wing of Remain where yeah. they've come to an answer and it may well be the right answer, but there is a kind of zeal about it that can be. There aggravated. is, but it's actually I don't actually know enough about it really because I lost interest in that conversation a long time ago, along with many other social media driven conversations. But I get the sense at the moment that there is something religious about Brexiteers in the sense that, you know, the God desire is about this idea that, you know, you have an imagination of something that you want to be real and that comforts Mm. you and gives you a sense that there is a better life somewhere. I think that's how they think about Brexit. Because it, it, it doesn't exist. We know that. Uh, it, has, it hasn't come true. But they still say, well, it's there somewhere, if only it was done right. I mean, I know pe- that's what communists say as well. But you could say all religious people say it. All religious people, and I include communists and Brexiteers in that, but all people who but who have a faith think that, no, it should be there. It must be real. It's got to be there somewhere because I feel it so strongly. And that feel, that's the same thing. That's the God desire. There's also that idea that if somehow we'd stayed in the EU, if the vote had gone the other way, that that would have been a tranquil sort of like storyline for this country that wouldn't have, you know, have been disrupted. Or if we rejoin that there won't be problems um, with with that. So, yeah, 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 I I guess there's a faith-based element to both those things. I think there is for almost all idealists. You know, I'm not, that's the thing I'm not. I'm really not an idealist. I, I have a sort of, at one point in the book, I quote A.A. Gill, who I had a sort of minor argument with, well, actually a major argument with before that, which isn't in the book, because he was uh, relentlessly horrible about me. I might tell this story, actually. It's not to do with what Mm. we're talking about, but it's interesting. Uh, He used to just slag me off continually in his columns or whatever. And then I met him and uh, and he said to me, why don't you like say hello to me? Because we've been in rooms together. I said, well, Mm. it's been horrible about me in print. And he was like, oh, no, that's just part of the rough and tumble of showbiz. And I thought, well, no, it isn't. I, I, could, I found it really like, horrible, horrible. Yeah. Anyway, 
then he said, he was at the Hay Festival. He said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've got a book out. And he said, oh, I've got a book out. It's an autobiography. And I went, is it called Cunt? And it got a massive <laughs> laugh. And people around him, but he looked really angry. And I thought, well, this is what you're doing to me. Don't you understand? This is it. This it's just is, a rough and tumble, A.A. Eh, Gill. Eh, he looked really upset. Anyway, in The God Desire, he uh, reacts to my sense that, that God is a projection of desire, a projection of wish. It's a wish fulfillment thing by saying, oh, that's so Jewish. I want it so it can't be true. Uh, and I go on to discuss that in, in that chapter. But I, it's interesting because I kind of think, like, what what is Jewish about that, A.A. Gill? I think that's just someone who, when they're with someone who's Jewish, just thinks everything they say is Jewish in some way. <laughs> but what I do say is, I don't think it's Jewish, but it is kind of slightly depressive, which probably is who I am. I used to be, used to be actually genuinely depressed and have clinical depression. I really don't anymore. But there's elements of it in my worldview. And one of them is, you know, this is all there is. You know, we make of it lots of things, but we're making those things. And we have to accept that. And I have to accept it. And that's so when I see ideologues of any sort, doesn't mean I don't think they have something, you know, ideas in there that might be good. But what I think is these are people led by a faith rather than by any kind of objective reality. The um, what's interesting you mentioned about the sort of Jewish dimension is that oh, the one of those really surprising things you think, well, how did I not know this? Where you said that um, the Jewish faith doesn't have a clear position on the afterlife. I was just fucking yeah. blown away by that. I, just, yeah. I, I wasn't even close to knowing that. Yeah, well, most people don't know that. And actually, a rabbi has taken issue with me. A bloke came up to me in Brent Cross just to make it more Jewish. Uh, and said, oh, uh, did you see I wrote something to you, which I hadn't seen, uh, about how, you know, you're wrong about how there is. A, and uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a theologian, but I'm fairly clear that the, the straightforward Christian position, which is, you know, you do good works in this life or you accept Jesus into your heart and there is heaven for you off. That definitely doesn't exist. Um, and. Actually, the interesting thing, which I don't say in the book, but might do in another edition, is the Jewish position, the religious Jewish position, is there are 613, they're called mitzvot, and they're things you're meant to do all the time. And it's like more like OCD than religion. So it's like, say this, don't eat that, wrap this thing around your arm, wear this thing on your head, blah, blah. And I'll tell you what that I think that is. That isn't a religion that has a sort of arc towards something very grand in the future. That's a religion that says, if you do this now, all these things now, you might be all right now, right? Because that mm. is a religion made up <coughs> made up of people under threat, right? Yeah, and constantly yeah. persecuted. And I know this to be true uh, because a guy called Shalom Auslander, who wrote a brilliant book called Foreskin's Lament, which is about leaving an Orthodox <laughs> Jewish community. He told me once when he first left, he just thought as he was walking down the road that terrible things were going to happen to him all the time. Mm. Because he'd been, you know, inculcated in a world where you constantly have to do shit to feel like life is all right. And that's, I think, what Judaism is. It's much more like, how do I immediately make things all right? And it's little codes and symbols and whatever. You, I mean, you deal so well with, like, like... You take on like the the obvious, you know. You, you mentioned sixth form mentality, and yeah. and you know, there's those questions about if there was a god, why would there be bad stuff? And yeah. stuff. But every once in a while, someone can phrase something so simply, and and it, like I had James Haskell, uh, former rugby player, now DJ on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, 
And he just he was he was going off on one about God, and he said, "Well, why hasn't he killed the devil then?" Right. And and I just thought, fuck, that's a really fair point. Like like if you've got this kind of omniscience, why wouldn't you just take out the devil? But yeah, you you, you kind of cover it in a way about that complicity. Like, well, if I don't have the devil, what the fuck do I mean? You know, yes, I don't have context. Yes, I mean James. I don't know James Haskell, but I don't know how many Christians. Although you know, I talk about how. Frank believes a lot of the literal truth of the Bible. Uh, Frank said to me at one point that he believes he will burn in hellfire for certain things that he'd done. So, you know, there are people who completely believe the literal truth. I don't mention the actual devil. I mention the constant coming up from atheists of like, mm. well, if God exists, why is there cancer? Why is there the Holocaust? Why do children die or whatever? And I don't think that's an argument. I genuinely, for, I, I, as far as God people go, I think is an easy answer to that, which is, well, there has to be evil in the world for there to be good in the world. Straightforward. Uh, and like, if there was no bad things, life would be even more meaningless, right? Yeah, Although yeah. that raises a separate question about heaven, which is if there is no bad stuff in heaven, then heaven's a bit meaningless, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think what's interesting about people will sometimes say they lost their faith when one bad thing happened. Yeah, And then you go, okay, so there's this deal between you and a higher power whereby you can fuck up more or less continually, but apologise and get redemption. But you are, you're putting God on a sort of one strike policy. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, it seems like the real pa- yeah. inverted power structure. No, you <laughs> fucked up, buddy. You yeah. know, my kid got sick. So uh, I'm afraid that's it for life. But at the end of the day, what it demonstrates, by the way, putting God on a one-strike policy is what the book is about, which is we basically invented it. We have this notion of, like, he's a higher power. We are constantly kneeling to him. He's the high-status one. We are lowly. But my belief is, no, we created him. I mean, we created him as this higher power, but we created him, which means if we don't want him, yeah, you just say, I don't believe in you anymore. So despite this great power he has, we have power over him very easily which is like, oh, well this happened my life turned to shit so i don't believe in you anymore and he's a bit like the royal family isn't he whereby that the, he's sort of got to do stuff for us to go you know well, we the royal don't family, have to have I, this as i say in the end of the book the royal family and monarchy are one of the clearest examples of like i think the god desire refracts into many different forms so there's got yeah. the archetypal thing but the royal family kings and queens and indeed, dictators and or just another version of it. And I, I saw that very clearly as El Coder about this with the Queen's death, that you know, we were revering this dead body like it was something godly, like it had power and like we had a relationship to it and all the rest of it. But at least God doesn't actually cost us any money. Well, he does. Does he cost us money? No, does he cost us money? I mean, you... Well, the church costs us money. God, uh, God is... Yeah, he does. The church does cost us money, but probably not as much anymore as the royal family. You you mentioned like you know like physics and stuff, and like the persuasive arguments. Oh, and and I thought you you sort of echoed my thoughts in a way that physics is really good up to a point, you know, yeah. and then then dark matter. You go, well, this sounds a lot like guy in a cloud, to be honest. Yeah. And 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 also like with the idea of the big bang, it's they're very good at explaining every single thing that happened after the big bang. But if you ask me what happened like a fucking millisecond before it, there's literally no, there's no theory. There's, there's absolutely nothing. Well, that, that isn't actually so, true, Jeff. Sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you there. Well, well it's, so, but it's like see, the, the singularity. And... Well, the point I'm making the book is that to understand what happened before the Big Bang, you basically have to be Stephen Hawking 
and three or four other people, because the only way you can understand it is through very complex mathematics. As such, I can't really get into it. It's not that isn't the reason why I don't believe in God. I accept it. I accept that before the Big Bang, there was a kind of nothingness that we can't even imagine that create that. And from a quantum effect, uh, stuff happened as a result of a random quantum effect. Now, I actually buy that. I don't have any problem with it, but I can't imagine it. It doesn't land in me like any kind of sort of like, oh, right, I get it. No, I just have to accept it mm-hmm. a little bit. Like I do say this in the book, like in past centuries, people accepted stuff from priests that they didn't understand. Right. Mm-hmm. Except I do accept it. I do accept that Stephen Hawking is fucking clever about that shit or was. And so therefore he's right. Um, and I, actually, I don't know if you know, I'm very like a lot of blokes. And I talked to this in the book, I've written a play about it. I am like obsessed with quantum physics. And I think I'm obsessed with quantum physics because I don't have God and I do want to find some kind of truth in the granularity of life. And the only place you can find that is quantum physics. The trouble is, no one understands quantum physics. <laughs> and I've read like 17 books and I'm still not essentially any the wiser. Well, you mentioned what was it the mysterious particle? It had a funny name, which 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 drew me in a bit. The the strange the particles, the quantum, the, the, the two oh, things. Entanglement. That, entanglement. No, it had it had a name that was like a oh, bit a bit mystic. Is it the observer effect? Yeah, like two two particles that are a long way away from each no, other no, that's still into into. That's entanglement. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you want me to explain it to you? Yeah. All right. Uh, so had you seen, you would have loved my play, God's Dice, right? Because it's about physics mm. and religion, uh, but it's not on at the moment. It was like, it was that Alan Davis was the physicist in it and it was at Soho Theatre, but then the pandemic happened, so it never transferred to the West End. And also it got quite a lot of strange reviews from people who didn't understand it. That's the trouble if you write about this shit <laughs> and reviewers come and they just don't understand it. But entanglement, so to put it very simply, and I, by the way, can only put it very simply, is if you get two subatomic particles, like two uh, electrons or whatever, you can pair them, by which I mean some magnetic effect, you can actually make them twins, as it were, in your laboratory, okay? Then they will spin in opposite directions, right? And never mind what spin means, just accept one spins in direction A, the other spins in direction B. Then if you took an electron B, and you shot it, which you could do through a laser gun or whatever, 200 light years away. And then you reversed, like in Star Trek, you reversed the polarity yeah. on, on electron A. So it's now spinning at electron B. The other electron that's 200 light years away will spin in the opposite direction at that point, at the same point. As if, as yeah. if somehow uh, this first electron has transferred that information instantaneously to something hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Now, that feels like a miracle, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that's what God's Dice, my play, is about. The fact that, like, is is there evidence for the miraculous in quantum physics? Uh, and could water turn into wine on the same basis? Right? That's what that play yeah. is about. Uh, but I, I can't get into the physics now. The way that I understand the physics, that is not quite as miraculous as it sounds. Right? But if you want to I mean, if you want to find magic and and feel it's real, you should read a lot of quantum physics books because they all sort of imply that there is magic in a way to to at the very very deep structures of life. 
Well, I mean, that's, I mean, just to sort of bring it to a close, that, that's one of the things that you talk about is about the no atheists in, in, in a foxhole thing. Yeah. And, and you sort of, just describe us how you take that idea on. Well, I think that was something I heard, first heard from Frank. Um, so we've had loads of discussions, me and him, and that's one of the things like in the book, I try and make clear that as opposed to social media, which has created a very binary thing whereby if someone you know or someone you see on social media says something opposed to what you think, that that you should have no truck with that person whatsoever. But meanwhile, yeah. Frankie is a very, very, you know, uh, deeply devoutly believing Catholic. And I always found that really interesting about him. Very early in our relationship, I thought that's really interesting. And it makes him... Yeah, I thought I'd already established this bloke is funny. He likes football. We're clearly incredibly simpatico at one level. I'm what I'm going to not be interested in him now that I found he believes something which, at some level, I think is mad. No, I think that that makes our relationship more interesting. Anyway, he did once say to me this thing about no atheists in foxholes, which I think is something that God believers say sometimes to mean that on your deathbed or wherever, when you on a plane when there's very bad turbulence, people who don't believe in God will suddenly find themselves praying. And my point about that is, yeah, fine, because what that is an argument for is the existence of fear, not of God, because you might do loads of things. You might pray or you might shout out, I, and I have done. You know, I've definitely cried out probably with words to uh, someone uh, in my head, really, that I don't want X, Y, and Z to happen, and that could be something like really crap, like not wanting a goal to be scored against Chelsea to wanting my daughter who's got an eating disorder to get better, right? These are, I want, uh, but that, this, this is about fear and hope. It's not really about God. It's just about the rhetoric of life that you want to say something that makes you feel that the thing that you want, safety or hope or whatever, somehow can come to being. It's not an argument for the existence of God, is my point. It's about the frailty of humans. I think it's beautifully put, and 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 you have like the ability to. There's some amazing sentence in it. There, there's one in the book. You talk about this complex interval of light, but also on the other hand, you talk you talk in a way that's so unbelievably accessible. So I, I would you know encourage anybody to Thank to you. read I, that's it. That's not me, by the way. That's John Up. I just claim it. No, just I'm not going to because I love John Up. Well, how how so old much. was the person that said it? How, how old? old was the person that said? Yeah. Well, when he wrote it, it was probably about. In his mid- but he's dead now. He's dead now, yeah. Well, fuck him. You okay. know what I mean? Like, okay. So yeah, John Updike, or was it me? Calls life <laughs> this complex. I think that that's it. Once I can't they hear die, that, you... by the way. He was a, he was a believer. I can't yeah. hear that phrase without getting goose pimples. This complex interval of life is so beautiful. I think. Yeah, because um, it sounds both godly and and not, and yes, and I think yeah. you know, it really it really it really sums up sums up the book, and and I appreciate you so much. Uh, for coming on the show to talk about it. and and for your next your next essay book, I'd I'd love you to come back and chat again. Yeah, Any clues on what that might be? Tell you something about what that might be. I haven't decided on this completely. Yeah, a few people are trying to warn me off it, but I'm thinking about writing a book called The Male Gaze. Now, before you get confused, because Ruby Wax did when I was telling her about it on the way to the uh, the Hay Festival. Mm. That's not G A Y S. That's G A Z E. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I was wanting so I don't know how much you're aware of this, but in feminist thought, which has obviously changed a lot over many years, there is a thing called the male gaze, which subjects women mm. and oppresses women and is very described in early feminist thought in the 70s or whatever. Uh, although I first came across it in a book by a man called John Berger, who's an art critic, about how women are portrayed and how men's, the way that men look at women is all about that. 
And it, I agree with all that, but I've never seen a book about what it's like to own one. I've never seen a book about what it's like to actually live with and own that gaze. Uh, and I'd like to write one. My worry is, like, when I wrote Jews Don't Count, right, I got a lot of pushback, yeah. a lot of fucking terrible stuff on social media, but every Jew was really grateful. I know that if I write the male gaze, I'll get loads of pushback, loads of people hating me, and no man will be grateful. <laughs> Literally no man. <laughs> They'll say, you're right, but quietly and whatever. They won't. I won't get this huge love that I get from Jews for Jews don't count. I'll just get men saying, yeah, 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 I know that's right, but we don't like to say it. Well, I, I, I think it's interesting because you're going for like, I'm, I'm doing a book called The British Bloke Decoded where I'm talking about why we like curry, why we like curry right. and, and why we like lager. And you, you're... You're going like so much further beyond that, but maybe, maybe it's the blokosphere. It's yeah, a new, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's the new Marvel multiverse of, <laughs> of, 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 you know, this novel thing of men writing about what it's like to be a man. It will yeah. never catch on, but um, but listen, I, I enjoyed the book loads. Everyone needs to go and download it, buy it, read it, listen to it. And David Badil, thanks very much for coming back on what most people think. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Okay, that was the chat with David Badil. I think I mentioned it several times, but uh, get the book. And obviously, Jews Don't Count is well worth a, a read or a listen. And also, that, that documentary about social media was, was excellent. I mean, basically, the man's doing great work. Just check it all out. Okay, just before we go, just some reviews on iTunes. As I say, if you leave me a five-star review, I will read it out. And this is from Tully T. That sounds a brummy name. Tully T. Great podcast. Concise, outspoken, balanced and funny. Uh, um, this is from one nat so is this well, this is like a scottish person um i love this podcast for its beautifully balanced views don't let anyone tell you this is some right-wing punditry jeff brings on people from all backgrounds and all political viewpoints he addresses every single one of them with the same degree of inquisitiveness and openness that's true i mean thank you there was a longer review than that but i really appreciate that i do i just i want to hear what people think you know um, this is from Will Sheps. Will Sheps. Hi, uh, superb mix of chat. Superb. That's a great posh bloke word, isn't it? Superb mix of chat. Nice to know there is another old school raver who leans to the right of politics and enjoys trying to hone the Belfast accent. Keep up the work, Jap. No, that was shit. That was shit. Um, this is from Yogi Dino. That also sounds brummy. I put off my longer walks until a Tuesday to make sure I can listen in one interrupted session. Although he has a rubbish taste in music. Ep- Whoa. Hang about. So I've just been co- complimented on loving club music. What, you like stuff in lyrics, do you? Oh, please tell me what to think of this song. Um, the uh, But no, thank you very much for your five-star review. Mark James Long. Mark James Long. Long-time listener, first-time reviewer. Really look forward to this pod dropping from Jeff. You're too old to use words like that, Mark. He's a very funny man. Without fail makes me laugh and think in equal measure. Um, Full transparency, I've got the first book and Jeff's second on Uh, (laughs) pre-order. That that so sounds like something I've just included there. Uh, This is from Trevor Brooksmith. There was a lovely bunch of reviews here. This may be for the 200th. As this podcast series reaches its double century, I felt the need to leave some feedback. I walk our two border terrierists. Jesus, not wrong there. They are fucking angry little dogs. Uh, twice a day and listen to numerous podcasts to learn what most people think. Thank you very much, Trev. Uh, And this is from, um, (laughs) this is from Matthew. Hope Alistair Campbell, uh, 
comes on the show so he can remember that he's Alistair Campbell. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. At some point, he will remember that he was Alistair Campbell. Uh, this is from Panda Hat. I started listening during the lockdown, and it's still the podcast I choose first when the new episodes are released. Good banter, and I enjoy the counter-arguments of the guests. Great mental health advice, which has certainly helped during lockdown. Thank you very much. I This is, I think there's one more here. Okay, so that was all the... Thank you for the reviews. It does make a difference. Uh, we're, we're building up now. We still... I'm, I can use this. See, I've had Has, Haskell, Charles and Badil. You know, that is, there's, that's a big three there. So I'm looking to really smash it out of the park uh, with the guests and the chat. And of course, we'll have all your, your favourites and regulars coming back. Simon Evans, Dominic Frisbee. All of those guys are booked in and coming up in the next few weeks and months. So have a great week. And I've... I was going to say I've been Jeff Norcott. But I'm, this isn't a gig, Jeff. You're just sitting in your fucking house talking to a microphone that's plugged into a laptop. Podcast, 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 podcast.